If you are uh, staying in here, if you would turn to Revelation chapter 1, we're going to go into Revelation for our summer series beginning right now this morning. Uh, And I have to warn you, in going into Revelation, we're not going into the shallow end of the pool. Uh, The Revelation is the last book of the Bible, but it is in many ways the deepest part of the Bible. Good news, though, is this summer we're only going to be focusing on the first three chapters. Uh, We will get to the other ones uh, at some other time. Uh, We'll go back, I promise. Uh, But the first three chapters we're going to deal with because we want to ask this basic question. What does Jesus say to the church? Uh, In the first three chapters, uh, John, who gets this revelation from Jesus, sends off messages to seven churches that were existent uh, in Asia Minor, which is today called Turkey, uh, seven different churches. Uh, In each church, he has something good to say, something challenging to say, uh, some way that they can repent and get better, some way that uh, they can get encouraged to uh, change and turn away from what they're doing wrong. And I think in all those messages, there's something for greater hope to learn. Uh, What we just celebrated and kind of crossed over the milestone of becoming a particular church, very important for us to be asking all the time, what does Jesus want in this place? What does he want from us? That's the whole theme this summer. Uh, And so let's start this morning with the first eight verses. If you'll hear with me the word of God. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God, And to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Amen. That's the beginning of the deepest section of the Bible. Let me get you started here. Uh, Do you love hearing stories about the founders of things? Uh, I enjoy stories like that. Maybe you've seen the movie about Steve Jobs and how he founded Apple. Or maybe you've uh, heard stories about even locally how George Jenkins started Publix. Uh, There's some really great stories about how he would, in his suit and tie, serve as a bag boy from time to time at his own store uh, in Winter Haven and in uh, Lakeland. Pretty amazing. Uh, My favorite of all time is the story of Phil Knight starting Nike, and it started uh, with him selling homemade, he literally handmade sneakers, 
and sold them out of the trunk of his car uh, in parking lots all around Oregon. And now you have Nike. I love hearing those stories because it shows you how something small can get big and very influential. But no matter how big or influential it gets, it still carries with it the marks of the person who originally founded it. So that even today, Publix, as big as it is, still has something of the fingerprints of George Jenkins on it. Apple still has Steve Jobs' fingerprints. Nike has Phil Knight's fingerprints on it. And so the reason why Revelation starts the way it does is because John, before he ever gets to the messages to the churches, before he ever gets to the weird stuff in chapter 4 and all the visions that he sees about the future, he first has to see the founder of the church to remind himself and to remind us of what ought to continually mark the church, the people of God, forever. The church must continually see Jesus. John Stott, the the great pastor and, and Bible scholar, says this about this section of Revelation. He says, a church with its back to the wall, like those seven churches in Asia. They had their back to the wall, by the way. Um, they were under persecution. This is the whole reason why John's writing. He himself is exiled on the island of Patmos because he'd been arrested at the emperor of Rome's request. Uh, The emperor Domitian, at the end of the first century, started a worldwide persecution of Christians, the first in history. And John got shipped off to a desert island, and that's where he sees all this stuff. And he's writing back to the churches that he helped to pastor because they were still under the gun. So the church had its back against the wall. It was fighting for its survival. Listen to what John Stott says. That kind of church needs more than moral exhortation. The church doesn't just need to hear, hey, stop it, get better, do better, try harder. Sometimes those messages can be good, but it doesn't just need that. And he said the church doesn't just need pious entreaty. That is, you know, pious sayings that kind of, you know, help the time pass, like everything will turn out okay in the end. Ah, Don't worry, be happy, that kind of stuff. The church needs more than that. John Stott said the church needs to see Christ. When its back is against the wall, what do we need? We need to see our founder again. And so this morning, if you look at your bulletin, uh, in these first eight verses, John answers three important questions about Jesus. First of all, in in verses 4 to 5, he tells us who Jesus is for our reminding. Uh, Then in verses 5 and 6, he tells us what Jesus did to establish the church And then lastly, in verses 7 to 8, he tells us what Jesus is doing and will do to finish his work in the church. So who is Jesus? What did he do to start the church? And what is he doing now and will do to finish his work? And this is so important for us to hear today too, okay? So first of all, who is Jesus? Now, this is John's favorite topic to talk about his Jesus. Uh, If you don't know anything about John the writer, um, this same John mentioned in verse 4 And again in verse 1, is the same John who wrote the Gospel of John. Also the same John who wrote the three letters that go by his name, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He also wrote Revelation. He's known in the Bible as the beloved disciple. Uh, And that wasn't just because, you know, he was the only disciple that Jesus loved, because of course he loved all the disciples, but it was because John had a special kind of relationship with Jesus. 
uh, one that the Gospels describe. Um, for example, there are times in Jesus' life where it was only John and a couple other people, usually Peter, James, and John. Those are the three main ones who would go and do special things with Jesus. Like They were the ones to pray with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane alone. Just those three, John, Peter, and James. And then at the Last Supper, John was the only one who sat right by Jesus' side as they ate that Last Supper. It says John was so close that he leaned back at one point and just kind of like a friend rested in Jesus' bosom, in his chest, the beloved disciple. And this is one of the cool things I like about Jesus. Actually, it's my favorite thing about Jesus. The people who were closest to him became the ones who were most enthusiastic about talking him up. And I don't believe there's really anybody else who can say that in all of history. Uh, The people who are closest to me and you see our flaws. From a distance, all of us can look great. And people from a distance can talk us up. Have you ever had that celebrity and you thought, I want to be like them? And then you learn something about their private life and think, ooh, never mind. I don't want to be like them. Because the closer you are to somebody, the more you see they got clay feet. And every rose has its thorn or two or three or four, right? Uh, Except with Jesus, here's the cool thing. The people who were closest to him, the people who leaned in his bosom as they ate, saw there was no clay feet. There were no thorns on the rose. And they became the most enthusiastic cheerleaders of the majesty and greatness and immense power of Jesus Christ. Look at what he says there in verses 4 and 5. He describes a powerful Jesus, not one with feet of clay. He says, John, to the seven churches in Asia, grace to you and peace from the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come. Now that's describing the Father, God the Father. And then, secondly, he describes the Holy Spirit from the seven spirits who are before his throne, which we got to do a little sidebar here. Today is the day of Pentecost, by the way, uh, the day uh, when Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit on the church. Uh, there are not seven spirits of God, literally, but this is something that John likes to say in the book of Revelation, that, that there are seven spirits before the throne of God, or that the Holy Spirit is the sevenfold spirit of God. And this is one of the reasons why Revelation is so confusing. Um, you know, the whole book is about numbers, and what numbers symbolize. And we're not into that very much today, the symbolism of numbers. But back in the ancient time, they were very much into it. And so the number seven represented the number of fullness and completion, perfection. For example, all the way back in the first page of the Bible, Genesis 1, God made the world in six days, and the seventh he set apart as holy to himself, the Sabbath day, and there you had the first week. And ever since then, every week on earth has been seven days. You can't have a 10-day week or a three-day week or a two-day week. It's always a seven-day week. Seven is that number of God's perfect completion. And so when John says there are seven spirits of God, what he means is the one Holy Spirit is absolutely perfect in every one of his ways who does everything well and everything we need him to do. Okay, so think about it. He's mentioned the Father who was and is and is to come. He's mentioned the perfect Holy Spirit of God. And now look at where he lists Jesus Christ, his friend. He lists Jesus Christ right alongside, equal to the Father and the Holy Spirit. Wow. 
Now you would think if, if there was something, if there was clay feet to see in Jesus, John would have saw it. If there were thorns in Jesus, if there were dark secrets and skeletons in the closet, John would have known it. And he wouldn't have been as enthusiastic about this galactic statement that he's making here, which is, y'all, Jesus Christ is nothing less than God himself. That in the one true and living God, there are three persons eternally, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these persons are the same in substance, and they are equal in power and in glory, as our shorter catechism tells us. The same in substance, equal in power and glory. Jesus Christ is God the Son, perfect from the Father. And what that means is it is only through Jesus, John says, that you can have either grace or peace. There's no way you can get grace, there's no way you can get peace, except receiving it from God's own Son, Jesus, sent by the Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit, given to you by that same Spirit. Only way. Now, I think you all would agree that everybody, especially in today's world, everybody needs grace and peace. Amen? We are in short supply of those two things. In fact, I would... I would uh, suggest to you that if we had grace and peace like this, the problems of the world would evaporate. And yet here John is saying to a persecuted church and to us that if by faith we come to God through his one and only son Jesus, we will receive that one thing, the grace and peace, that can solve your greatest problem and that will one day eventually solve all the world's greatest problems, but you've got to come through him. You can't come in any other way. After all, he says there in verse 5, Jesus is also the Christ. That's another big word, the Christ. Uh, Christ is just the Greek word for Messiah. And Messiah means the anointed one or the chosen one of God. Uh, all, all throughout the Old Testament, God is promising a Messiah to come, a, a Christ, a chosen one, who would be all the things that God's people needed him to be. And John, uh, right there, kind of goes off and, and enlists three different things that Jesus is as the Christ, which is exactly what we need in our life. It's exactly what you need in the world. Look at what he says. Uh, Jesus is the Christ, the faithful witness. That's the first thing. The firstborn of the dead, second thing. And then the ruler of kings on earth. Those three things are the most vital things you need. And those are the things that only Jesus can be. He's the witness, the perfect prophet with a capital P. Uh, Jesus takes God's word and he delivers it without flaw to people. Uh, you don't have to wonder what God is like if you've got Jesus at your side because he shows you what God is like. You don't have to question. Uh, you don't have to worry about having a question that you need answered that he's not going to answer. Because Jesus comes to us as a faithful witness of the truth about God. Secondly, he's the firstborn of the dead. And this is speaking about how Jesus died. He, he came into the world, and even though as God he couldn't die, he took on flesh so that he could. So that he could die for us. And when he died on the cross, he was like a priest offering up his life as a sacrifice. I mean, every priest has to offer something to God. And Jesus, instead of taking a goat or a bull or a lamb he took his own body and he laid it down on the altar of the cross 
and he lifted it up, and God accepted the sacrifice, and we know that. How do we know God accepted it? Because after he was dead, he came alive again. That The sacrifice was accepted. God you know, stamped his seal of approval on the priest's work by raising that priest from the dead. That's why he calls him the firstborn of the dead. And firstborn, meaning there are other children that will follow in the same family. Praise the Lord. Uh, as um, Paul says in Romans, uh, God predestined us to be children of his so that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. Think about it. If Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, that means everybody who trusts in Jesus will also resurrect from the dead even as he did. You will come out of your grave one day. And I will too. In the same resplendent glory that Jesus came out of his grave with. That's why he's called the firstborn from the dead. Amazing. And then the last one's my favorite. The ruler of kings on earth. The ruler of kings on earth. I mean, even kings are under the reign of Jesus Christ now. God has set his son over every power that is named, whether it's an invisible power, Satan, or whether it's a visible power, the president, the king, whoever. I mean, can you imagine how comforting this was to the churches being persecuted by the emperor of Rome in the first century for them to hear that their Lord Jesus was the ruler even of that man? Wow. Do you see what I'm talking about? John, who knew Jesus inside and out, I mean, he knew him more than anybody else, maybe than his own mother, is the most eager to talk him up as high as he can talk him. He is God. He is Christ. He is prophet. He is priest. He is king. Therefore, if you want grace and peace, you need look no further. In fact, you can look no further because this is the only place you'll find it. Now, why is John saying this? Because this is our founder. And if he is our founder, we as God's people must continually be marked with his fingerprints. And the first way that we get marked with his fingerprints is we as the church, we as the community of faith, ought to be the place on earth where Jesus is actually taken seriously. That's our number one priority here at Greater Hope. That's the number one priority of any church that is worthy of the name church. The number one priority is take Jesus seriously. Take God seriously. Don't just say you believe in Jesus. Really believe it. Really live it out. In fact, C.S. Lewis said this, you know, Jesus made such claims that either he is who he says he is and he's Lord of all and therefore you need to bow down and give every single thing to him or he was a crazy man. And all the people who followed him were crazy men and women. And you need to reject them. Because anyone who stands and says, hey, y'all, I'm God, either is God or, as C.S. Lewis said, is akin to the man who says he's a poached egg. Crazy. Here's the point. If you say you believe in Jesus, which I know as a pastor, everybody says they believe in Jesus, at least when they're talking to me. Everybody suddenly believes in Jesus when they're talking to me, right? If you say you believe in Jesus, the proof of that 
is how seriously you take him in your everyday life. Example, uh, what if someone came to you and said, hey, I'm a Chevy truck man all the way. I own, I, Chevy's the only kind of truck for me. It's the best truck. That's why it has a bow tie on the front. Very classy. And I only, I only want to drive Chevys. And then you ask them, great, which of the Chevy trucks do you drive? And they said, oh, well, I drive a Ford. What are you thinking? Yeah, yeah, you may be like, I'm glad you're driving a Ford, right? That's good. But you're probably also thinking confused man. Good man, but confused man. (laughs) Because, uh, you know, certain things, this is the point, certain things you can't claim to believe them if you don't actually do something. You know, you can't claim to be a Chevy man if all you ever have is a Ford or a Chevy girl, right? And I'm going to leave you all out. Girls can drive pickups too, right? Amazing, isn't it? And yet in church, I know, I know this is true, many people say they believe in Jesus, but something else is in the garage. They're going somewhere else for truth except the the true witness, the faithful witness. They're going for somewhere else. Um, Jesus is the firstborn of the dead, but yet they're terrified of death. That means something else is in the garage right now. I mean, you, you gotta you gotta start driving. You gotta start driving Jesus. Even though Jesus is the ruler of kings on earth, they're terrified at who is president in any given moment. As if that's any match for the ruler of kings on earth and the king of kings and the lord of lords, right? We have to at some point, and in fact, at every point along the way as a church, we have to ask ourselves: Are we serious? Are we serious? He's serious. Are we serious? That's the question. Uh, John knew it. He's wanting us to know it. Think about it, all right? That's the first point, uh, who Jesus is. Secondly, I want you to see what he did as founder to establish his church. Uh, and there in verses 5 and 6, uh, the, the end of verse 5, that is, and the verse 6, uh, he tells us a few things. First of all, he gives us a ongoing reality. And then based on that ongoing reality, he gives us two finished works that Jesus did to start the church, okay? So the ongoing reality, look at what it says there in verse 5. He who loves us. Ongoing reality. Uh, That word is present tense. He loves us. It doesn't say he loved us. It doesn't say he will love us when we get our stuff together. It says he loves us. And that's the number one thing Jesus did to get the church started. The church is a creature of the love of God in eternity. It's that God in eternity set his love on his people for no reason in them, not because we deserved it or we're good enough for it. He simply set his love on us because he decided to set his love on us. He loves us. And Jesus loves us with such a deep love. I mean, the Bible talks about so many, this talks about this in many different ways. Like you can know the height and the depth and the length and the width of the love of Christ, it says. But then once you know the love of Christ, you only come to realize his love surpasses knowledge. That's the kind of thing we're talking about. The love of Jesus is infinite. The love of Jesus never runs dry. 
what we're spending uh, this summer in this book of Revelation, and it's one of the least frequently preached books. But there's one other in the Bible I think is even less frequently preached. It's in the Old Testament, the Song of Solomon. Uh, most people will not even touch the Song of Solomon these days because it's got some stuff in it that you might not want to talk about in church, might make you a little uncomfortable, might make you blush. Because it is a book about love, it's a book about romance, a book about sexuality and marriage, right? So all those things are in there. But I find this very interesting. In past years of the church, the number one book preached in the Bible was the Song of Songs. Did you know that? If you go back in history and, and survey where are all the sermons coming from, People preached the Song of Songs without ceasing, it seems like, in the ancient times and in the Reformation times and the Puritan times. All the time. In fact, that goes back even before Jesus. Jewish rabbis every year at the Feast of Tabernacles used to preach through the Song of Songs. Every single year. Now here's why. Here's the key to why. They understood that book. Yes, it was about romance and marriage. But that book was at a deeper level about God's marriage to his people and how much he loves his people and how we, his people, are called to love him in return. Let me read to you a piece of it because I think it's the best illustration in the Bible of how much Jesus loves us. Listen to what it says. This is the man talking to his bride from Song of Songs chapter 4. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love. My sister, my bride, how much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice? At another place, he says very beautifully, my heart is sick with love. Turn your face away from me because your love overwhelms me. And the old writers and the old Christians knew what they were talking about. That is the way God loves us. Let that sit this morning. Sometimes we've convinced ourselves that God tolerates us, but doesn't love us. You know? Yeah, he gets us out of hell. Mm, you know, he, he lives with us and puts up with us. Okay. But are we willing, do we know it deep in the heart of hearts, that he loves us like that? That's what John is getting at. When Jesus founded the church, make no mistake about it, the church is a creature of love, born of love, eternal love, undying love, love that is passionate, love that brought him to the cross itself. That's why John goes on to say there are two finished works that were based on the ongoing love of God. Uh, he loved us, therefore he set us free, it says, verse uh, 6. He set us free from our sins. Verse, verse 5, excuse me. And then in verse 6, he made us a kingdom and priest to his God and Father. And so it's because he loved us, he spilled his blood so that we could be set free from our sins, from its guilt, from its condemnation, from its power. 
He loved us so much that he made us kings to reign with him. He made us priests to offer sacrifices of praise to follow his great sacrifice of atonement. To give our lives because he gave his life for us. He did this for us. That's how much he loved us. He took the initiative, set us free. You see, he didn't just get us out of prison. He didn't just set us free out of prison. He gave us a new life after prison. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? Uh, when someone gets out of prison after a long time, they need a lot more than just to be dumped off on the side of the road. I mean, you know, they, they need somebody to take them in. They need a job. They need food. They, they need somebody to care for them while they get on their feet. And it says here Jesus did that out of love. He spilled his blood to set us free, to get us out of prison, but then he made us a kingdom. He didn't just bring us to level zero. He brought us to level infinite. You know, he brought us all the way up to be kings and priests of God on the earth. That's how much he loves us. And so the church, not only is the place where Jesus is taken seriously, the church ought to always be the place where the love of God is our assurance. The thing that holds us steady. Assurance of your salvation ought to never be something that you're content just to have uncertain. Okay? Now, you can be a real Christian and not be sure that you're a Christian. I mean, there are many, many reasons and many reasons why people struggle to know whether they really are saved or not. Um, that's, that's something that we can get in another time, all the details there. But there are many reasons why you might doubt that. But you should never, ever be content to go on doubting it or have any reason to doubt it. You should always be seeking to have full assurance of faith, full assurance of God's love. Why? Because it's really hard to serve a God that you're not sure if he loves you. Uh, it's extraordinarily hard to love your neighbor when you don't feel like you're taken care of. You feel like your life and your eternity is uncertain. It's going to be hard to have patience with people. But once you begin to know he loves me. He, he's forgiven me. He's accepted me. He's brought me in. That's where real life can actually begin. If you're saved, even if you don't know it, you will go to heaven one day. You will go to heaven when you die. But if you're saved and you know it, you'll start to taste heaven now. And that's better by far. It's better to get a heaven here and hereafter, or at least a taste of heaven here and hereafter than it is just to try to put it off in uncertainty, not knowing whether or not you'll make it to heaven. It's very important that we learn how to assure ourselves in the love of Christ by faith. Now lastly, I want to talk to you about what Jesus is doing and will do to finish his work in the church. This one will be a little bit quicker, but it is, after all, the whole point of the book of Revelation. Uh, most people know the book of Revelation is about the end times. It's about how God will end the world and bring land the plane, so to speak. And it is. And so there in verses 7 and 8, he reminds us of what Jesus will do. And I would, I would put it this way, what he is doing. Because notice, behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. He's quoting from Zechariah 12, which we read earlier. Everybody will see him. Everybody will mourn and wail when they see him. Either they will wail out of joy 
or they will wail out of terror and regret, eternal regret, that they ignored Jesus and they can't ever go back on that. Notice, he is coming. I love how he says it because he could say he will come. But he says he is coming. Here's what that says to me. He's done left. <laughs> he's on the way. Uh, he's coming with the clouds. Every day you can go outside and look at the clouds and you know Jesus is not far behind that cloud. Now you say, well, hold on. John said that 2,000 years ago. He was coming then. He's coming now. He's slow. Well, actually, the Bible anticipates this and already answers the question. He says, don't count God's slowness as slackness. Actually, what you're experiencing in these 2,000 years is just the patience of God. He's waiting on you. <laughs> He's waiting on the opportunity to call you home and all his children home. He's waiting on that. That's, that's why he's waited 2,000 years. And besides, the Bible says, with God, one day is like 1,000 years, and 1,000 years one day anyway. Don't even put your time on to God because God is above and beyond time. Just know he is coming. He has then left the gate, and he's on the way. And we as the church ought to be the people who see him coming. We know he's coming. That's why John says, behold, he is coming. Look. I mean, literally what behold means. It's not just a fancy word. It means look. Look. He's coming. It's as if we as Christians, even though we can't see him literally coming, we ought to be able to see him by faith speeding towards us soon to arrive. And that ought to change the way we live because we see him coming. We ought to live like we see him coming. So that we're not surprised. Uh, don't you know there are some things you like to be surprised about and then there are other things you do not like to be surprised about? Category one, birthday party. Is that a good surprise? Sure, I like it. Most people like that. Some people might not. They might, might kind of freak them out a little bit. But for most people, that's an okay surprise. Uh, a, a gift that you didn't know you were going to get. Wonderful surprise. A bill from the IRS. Y'all like that? Be surprised by that? No. Uh, blue lights flashing in your rearview mirror. Good surprise? No. Uh, a call from the school that your kid got in trouble today. You like that surprise? No. There are some surprises that you that shouldn't be surprised. You don't want to be surprised by them. And John is telling. He's pleading with us here. The return of Jesus Christ is not something you want to be surprised about. In fact, Jesus tells story after story after story about this. I mean, it's almost like it's his favorite theme. Uh, he'll, he'll tell stories like uh, a landowner had a farm and he left it in the care of his employees while he went off to do some business. And he, he didn't tell them when he was going to come back. He just told them that he would. And he gave them some assignments to do. And then on the day when he came back, some of the employees were doing what they were supposed to do and they received a reward. Other, others, though, were surprised by his coming. They did not see him coming because they were doing all the things they weren't supposed to do. And Jesus has very strong, dark words. He says in one story, the master will take them and bind them and throw them into outer darkness. In another story, he says, the master will come and cut them to pieces. 
what is the point is he trying to get across? You do not want to be surprised when the ruler of kings on earth stands upon the earth once again. And he's on his way. And so as a church, if we're founded by this king, if that's why we're here today, because Jesus got this thing started, which he did, we've got to be the ones to take him seriously. Nobody else is going to take him seriously. We've got to be the ones. We've got to be the ones to be assured of his love. Nobody else has that assurance in all the world. Everybody is fighting for peace and grace and don't know where to find it. We know where to find it. We've got to live in that. And y'all, people do not see the freight train that is headed their way. We ought to be the ones who see it, hear it, understand it, and are prepared for it and are helping prepare other people for it. That's why John begins here. When the church is in distress, when the church is in any situation, the church needs to see Christ. Because although Jesus founded this thing thousands of years ago, it still should bear the marks of its founder. Amen? Amen.